It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Regina Waugh has been working in public service for over a decade to advance the rights of marginalised groups, champion gender equality and advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. Regina served as the Obama Administration's Director for Human Rights and Gender at the White House National Security Council and as the Chief of Staff in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the US Department of State. Today, she's working with the International Foundation for Electoral Systems to advance gender equality in the electoral process, support female leaders, and address barriers to women's political participation. Welcome to the podcast. I'm in Washington. You're in Washington, but I'm in Washington, D.C., and you're in Washington State. You've got it. Well, thanks so much. It's it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm thrilled to get to, to speak today. I'm going to start by taking you back to the very beginning because is there a better place to start? No, there's not. So can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and particularly when you first became aware that boys and girls got treated differently? Oh, sure. I mean, I was very lucky in that I I was raised, I think, by very progressive people. I like to say I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, which is a very conservative part of the state. And I used to tell people that I was raised by the only two liberals in Orange County, although I don't think that's probably technically true. But I'm an only child. When I was born, I was very much kind of the center of my parents' world, I think, in a good way. But I also had a cousin who was a boy who's four months older than me, and we were raised close together. We spent a lot of time together growing up. And he was a very kind of rough and tumble kid, and I was very bookish and more of an inside kid. I used to joke that I think he thought his name was Travis Gentle because he was always being told to be gentle. I think with me because I was a little bit younger, you know, and and he was just fascinated by, you know, he wanted to really get in there all the time. I think, you know, my parents, my family, my teachers always gave me the sense that I could kind of do anything that I wanted to do growing up. I don't know what that would have looked like if I had brothers, if I had been raised, you know, with more than one one child in my family. Yeah, it, it is a really fascinating question. I too grew up in a family with no brothers. There's just my sister yeah. and I, and I have constantly <laughs> asked myself the question, you know, our parents always taught us to aim high, but I've constantly asked myself the question, if there had been a son, would it have been different? Yeah. Not a question you can ask, <laughs> one to muse on. With that kind of background where gender inequality doesn't seem like it was a big part of your world, what led you to dedicate your career to precisely that, gender equality, advancing the rights of women and advancing the rights of the LGBTQ plus community? What set you on that path? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it 
really came from a broader desire to work in the human rights space. And this sense that I was always given by my parents who, you know, came from a much more working class background than than I was raised in. I was very fortunate just to know that I was expected to think about people who were differently situated than me, that just because I had all these advantages, I was made very aware of them, which I think was important. But I was also expected to kind of give back to you know, the community in whatever way that might be. From high school, college on, I wanted to work in the human rights field. And once I started in that space, I was lucky to kind of get brought into a lot of conversations around gender issues, around LGBTQI plus issues. And for me, it, it, it just kind of progressed from there. I mean, I think it's very hard to not want to engage on these issues when it feels like such a stark difference for so many people in the world based on whether they happen to be born male or female, right? Or whether they happen to be born a member of, of this these particular communities. So for me, it was about kind of fundamental fairness, but also about giving back and making sure that, that I was doing everything that I could or whatever I could to apply whatever talents I had, you know, that I was born with, but also just the fact that I was able to go to excellent schools and that, you know, I had been given every opportunity to succeed. I don't think my parents necessarily thought that I would work in foreign policy or in international affairs, but that was kind of where where this my work led. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that I've been able to broaden my, my landscape and my horizons beyond, you know, just what's going on in the United States. Anybody who watches Hollywood thriller movies would think that they know everything about the U.S. Department of Defence. You know, we see that in a lot of the movies, the Defence Department. I'm going to take you to your days working in the Defence Department in 2011, but you were there to do something that many people wouldn't associate with the U.S. Defence Department. You were there to work on the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, and this really signalled a landmark change in how the U.S approach overseas conflict and how to centre women's participation in the peace building process. Can you talk to us about that work and what led to the revelation that women needed to be at the centre? I had come over to, to DOD, to the Pentagon from this, the State Department. This is, as you said, 2011. So this was the first iteration of the U- United States plan, right? It was the first time we were going to actually have one, you know, some 10 years after uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, right? So it was a big deal. Secretary Clinton was the one who rolled it out in December of, of 2011. And, you know, I went over to the Pentagon and, you know, being able to kind of shepherd what is a huge bureaucracy. And I thought I had come from a huge bureaucracy, but, you know, getting into, into this space where there's just, you know, easily twice as many elements to coordinate. And it really was a shift. You know, the, the Pentagon was looking at its own kind of internal practices, because I think for a lot of people within DOD, when they heard about women, peace and security, this was, you know, in the, in the middle of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, there had been all of the sudden you know, this realization that we needed in a lot of spaces, women to be on the ground engaging with different populations, because it was impossible to have access, if if for no other reason, from a strategic perspective. But also, as you said, the participation of women in these peace processes was something that had been proven over and over and over again, that kind of the way to get stable and lasting peace was to have women involved as leaders, as you know, equal participants in these discussions. There's this constant recommitment. I think there's now 10 
Security Council resolutions related to the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And yet we still haven't necessarily got to the space where women are, are not having to constantly beat down the doors in order to get into these formal peace negotiations. The Pentagon was looking at their own internal practices, of course, looking at addressing issues of sexual assault, right, and harassment within the military services, within the Department of Defense, but also, of course, looking to see how we could be doing a better job of engaging and using our our own work all around the world to be able to do that. You know, now we're now on our second national action plan. All of the different departments have come together. And now that I'm back in this space on the civil society side and on the advocacy side, It's really wonderful and encouraging to see how far all of the U.S. agencies have come. Um, And I think the Pentagon in particular, there's just so much more structure and infrastructure in place than there was more than 10 years ago at this point. And when you look at a contemporary conflict like the Ukraine, I mean, we are obviously not at the stage in that conflict where there is a peace dialogue as such. But if you imagine that at some time in the future, there may be peace discussions. Do you think this kind of work, having women at the centre, how would it play out in practice? I mean, I think part of it is is literally the negotiators that are coming to the actual formal peace tables are, you know, we're getting that gender balance, right? This has been in a lot of ways a quite gendered conflict, right? I mean, a lot of conflicts are gendered, most conflicts are gendered, but, you know, just in, in the fact that, you know, you had young men or men of, of fighting age being the ones being forced to stay, women were kind of encouraged to to leave Ukraine and, and to evacuate. And so we've seen what the actual physical population of, you know, these places places now looks like the refugee population and folks who are in both internally displaced and who have had to leave their country look very different because of the way that men and women have kind of been sorted as, as a part of this conflict. You know, on the other hand, there are, you know, women involved right now in, in, the, in the leadership of, of the government. And I think that helps in a lot of ways, but we want to get to a place where it is assumed that women will be part of those formal peace negotiations. And I think one of the things that other governments and those of us in the advocacy space can do is to help, you know, encourage in these conversations and in these meetings that there are women represented and that there's a kind of a diverse array of of women represented. I mean, as you said, we're not at that point yet, unfortunately, right? It would be wonderful if we were at, at a point where the kind of active fighting was was going on. But I mean, I think the thing that I, I tend to worry about and think about in these situations is I think a tendency sometimes for the violence that has been perpetrated against women in particular and women and girls, which is part of, you know, what we look at in the, the women, peace and security space sometimes gets brushed under the rug in the name of healing and reconciliation and the types of, you know, discussions that need to happen afterwards. But if we're not addressing kind of all of the different crimes and atrocities that happen in the course of conflict, many of which impact women and girls, particularly heavily, I'm talking about sexual violence and all kinds of things. And we've seen reports of that in Ukraine not addressing that is is one of those things that sometimes actually prevents there being a lasting peace and truth coming out of out of that and i think when you have women in the negotiating space you're much more likely to have those issues brought to the fore and addressed women belong in all spaces and that's what we want to see absolutely now you referred to working at the us state department and of course hillary clinton was secretary of state at the time and you were working to advance the human rights of the LGBTQ plus community globally at a time when 
you know, harnessing these rights, advocating for these rights was becoming an explicit part of US foreign policy for the first time. So can you tell us about those days and how much progress do you think has been made? Because sadly, we know that there are still 69 UN member states that have legislation that criminalises people of diverse sexual orientation, gender identity. So yeah. this is certainly not a struggle that's been won. We were very, very lucky to have the leadership, not just of Secretary Clinton, but also of President Obama with this presidential mem memorandum that was issued towards the beginning of, of his administration that really directed all of the foreign affairs agencies to engage on these issues and also provided kind of a, a pillar of activities at the State Department, USAID, and others were really directed to do and importantly to report on. So, you know, having that top directive really did provide a, a sea change in the way that the U.S. government approached these issues in a really important way. Just this notion that we were going to push back against laws that criminalized consensual same-sex conduct, right? That we were going to adopt refugee policies that were you know, taking into account the types of, of discrimination and violence that people were facing around the world because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. So it was so encouraging to see this shift in our foreign policy. Obviously, you know, I worked on a number of things that kind of, as soon as I took on the portfolio, honestly, a bunch of, of things happened. You know, we had the Uganda Anti-Homosexuality Act resurrected. There was a law in Nigeria that was really, really devastating the Russia um, anti-propaganda law. All of these things were coming up at the same time. In a lot of ways, a lot of those same challenges persist today. But I think one of the things that was very exciting and encouraging about being in the U.S. government at that time, and I think now, thankfully, that that we have you know a new administration and that kind of presidential memorandum and executive order and you know top level leadership back in place, we're we're getting back to that space as well. But we had you know U.S. ambassadors doing kind of both public and private diplomacy. We had programming through this, this fund called the Global Equality Fund, which Secretary Clinton launched, which is a public-private partnership. And that actually provided emergency assistance to LGBTQI plus activists on the ground if they got themselves into trouble, help, you know, with legal fees and, you know, medical assistance and the type of help that, you know, was so desperately needed. But then also just this policy perspective that we were not going to allow people to be treated differently and not to be able to realize their fundamental human rights just because of, you know, who they were and because of who they loved. That was always the ground truth for us in, in doing that work. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it was first principles, it was human rights. You know, we got to meet just tremendous people all around the world. I was so impressed all the time by how brave they were, like literally taking their lives in their hands to advance, you know, their own rights, the rights of their friends and, and their fellow activists. So that was a, a tremendous privilege and one that I'm so glad to be able to now continue to get to work on from the, the civil society side. And I do want to talk to you about these transitions in your career because, you know, the conversation we've had so far, President Obama, Secretary Clinton, the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defence, but you left all of that and moved to Los Angeles to work on the Women and Girls Initiative. So it was going from the 
this, you know, global, big political world to a localised initiative. What made you decide to do that and, and how's it different in your lived experience? Oh. <laughs> it was such a change. I went because, you know, in, in 2017, the election happened. I was a civil servant, so I presumably could have stayed in my job at the time I was in the Global Women's Issues Office. But, you know, all of the political leadership had changed. It was for me a personal choice that it was time to kind of come back to California, which is where I'm from, um, be closer to home, and also to get to work on on these issues in a way that really felt like I could hopefully, you know, move things forward. And I wanted to stay in the public sector. And I was very lucky that this job happened to come open. I had, you know, moved from this global portfolio, as you said, where literally the only country that we as in my office were not responsible for was the United States. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, you know, focusing just on one. But then, you know, I moved to, to LA County and I, I remember having an orientation meeting with some of the chiefs of staff of the various departments in, in Los Angeles County. And, you know, they asked me what I was looking forward to and how I thought it would be different. I was like, oh, well, it's so nice to just have one country to focus on. And everybody around the table just just cracked up because LA County is huge, right? There are 10 million people that live in LA County. So if you're going to go to local government, it's pretty much the biggest local government you can find to dig into. <laughs> but I, I will, so that it was very different. And, you know, one of the things that I think was probably most surprising for me was just, you know, we had this board of supervisors who were elected officials or five people who are, you know, managing a $30 billion budget and who had kind of both executive and legislative responsibilities and power. They controlled the purse and were also the ones running all of the, the departments. So that was very different. And also they were just so much closer to their constituents, right? You know, it was in a lot of ways, a lot more of a responsive and adept body because you had people, there's something called the Brown Act in California. So all meetings basically are open to the public. So you have public comment at every meeting that you're coming to. You're having a lot of engagement directly with the people you're serving, which is very, very important and very, very different than being in the U.S. State Department as a bureaucrat. It was really interesting to get to, to see, especially when we were talking about women and girls, there is so much inequality within the United States. There's so much poverty in, in L.A. County. There were so many different, you know, circumstances for women and girls of color in particular. You know, we were at the time and still are addressing a huge homeless crisis and the number of women that were homeless because they had fled violence in their homes was astonishing. We had women who, you know, there are huge maternal mortality problems in the United States in a way that I, I hadn't necessarily paid attention to in working on these issues around the world. And it's staggering to see the tremendous rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality. And again, the racial discrepancies in those experiences for Black women versus white women. Those were the types of things that you all of a sudden you're realizing that a lot of these fundamental challenges and problems are exactly the same right here at home in the place I grew up 40 miles from Los Angeles and had no concept of that. So, you know, there were huge differences. And then there were also some really stark similarities where you're looking at issues of poverty and inequality. And those things really do in a lot of ways set forth what types of opportunities and what type of experiences you're going to have. 
And your work now is kind of building in some ways on that sort of experience, isn't it, an experience with representative politics, because today you work with the International Foundation for Electoral Systems to advance gender equality in the electoral and political process. Can you tell us a bit about what that means you do? I work as part of a broader inclusion team that really focuses on building democracies that deliver for all, right? And the deliver for all part is really where my focus, my team's focus is, which is making sure that women, you know, members of the LGBTQI plus community in all their diversity have equal access to the political process, to the electoral process. And that means everything from, you know, being able to register to vote, being able to get yourself, you know, to understand what is that you have an important role to play as a voter, as a citizen, to know what you need to do in order to show up on election day and cast your ballot, to have that space be safe, like physically safe, but also to feel like you can, you know, make your own free choice, which that and depending on where you are in the world, maybe is harder for women than it is for men. Things like family voting come in, right? We want women to know that it should be their decision about who they're going to vote for on a ballot. So we do those types of civic and voter education activities. We work with election management bodies to help them be gender sensitive in everything that they do. And that includes their own internal practices. So having women as members of your EMB, having parity in those spaces, having women on leadership levels all the way through. We do a lot of work with women's leadership and trying to develop, you know, women leaders at every stage of kind of political and public life. So, you know, providing some of those both hard and soft skills, training on negotiation and how, you know, confidence building, public speaking, all of those things, but also some of the technical elements of advocating for particular things or what does it mean to be a candidate and working in a government body. The other side of this, and this is something that we're continuing to develop, is that, you know, women have tremendous capacity, tremendous ability all around the world. You can build up and strengthen that capacity and give them as much training as, as humanly possible. But if you aren't addressing the broader you know, systems in which they're working and engaging, you're setting somebody up to run into a, a brick wall. Let's make sure that their colleagues in their workplaces, in their communities, in their homes and schools and political parties are also prepared to step up as allies and to understand the importance of gender equality in leadership, being able to provide those practical you know, ways that you can, you can be a, an advocate and an ally, I think is, is important. So that's, that's the other part of what we're doing. So this kind of gender mainstreaming, but also quite gender specific programming as well. What are you seeing in relation to violence against women and the trends in that? And by that, I mean, actual physical violence towards women candidates or potentially women voters. I mean, here in the US in the last few weeks, there's been the incident involving Nancy Pelosi's husband, obviously Nancy Pelosi being a very senior uh, Democrat figure on the US political stage, but it was quite clear that the person was looking for Nancy Pelosi and uh, instead encountered her husband. We know that in the online environment, there's so much misogyny, toxicity directed against women in the public square and that it doesn't stay there, that women in politics, in public life can talk about, you know, getting a rape threat, but it comes with a photo of their front door. You know, the person is trying to tell them, I know where you are. Do you see in your work, are these trends getting worse 
How do you feel about that? <laughs> it's so hard to say. And, and obviously, you know, we're we're talking now in November and we're about to enter into the 16 days for the elimination of, of gender-based violence the, starting November 25th. But of course, you know, we, we talk about the 16 days campaign and, and it is something that we all should be seized on every day. Violence against women is an epidemic. Right. I think if we look at at the statistics globally, you see something like one in three women over their the course of you know her lifetime will experience some form of, of sexual or gender-based violence. And that's just what is reported. And we know that this is one of those crimes where people don't want to report it. So we have to assume that those numbers are higher and higher and higher, which is already, you know, really problematic. And then, you know, we're talking about violence against women in the public and the political sphere. And we do see that we see physical violence, right? We see women politicians being targeted for physical attack. You know, I think the Nancy Pelosi example is a great one. You know, if you're going to stay in the United States, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, was threatened with being kidnapped, right? There was a plot for that to happen. You know, Gabby Giffords 10 years ago, 11 years ago, was was shot in the head and almost almost assassinated. So, you know, and you have these examples in all over the world of women being targeted for political violence. And you brought up the example of, of online violence. I mean, I think the vast majority of this violence is psychological, right? It is, it is threats. It is this shutting down of women in this space. And, you know, social media and the internet has made that so much more virulent and possible because you can direct these the swarm of attack against somebody right who might be speaking out as you said these threats the threats that women politicians tend to face are different in nature they tend to be much much more likely to be sexualized for one thing you know women politicians find images of themselves on the internet either that are real or not but that are specifically designed to humiliate them that are specifically designed to push them out of this space and i think that's the thing that is different about you know politics is a combative business often right in the best case scenario it is a competitive enterprise and i think there is this notion that oh you know this is kind of what you signed up for and it's not it, and it shouldn't be right and i think you know the threats that women face in these spaces and you see it with young women around the world particularly young women who maybe are not political figures yet but who decide that they're going to start advocating on behalf of women's rights and that's when you really see that type of uptick in violence you know and them being targeted specifically and getting these attacks online and being threatened and if you think that maybe it's already been hard enough for you to find your voice to raise your voice Maybe you don't necessarily have the support of the people in your family. And then as soon as you put your message out there, you're inundated by this wave of hate speech. You know, that is telling you that you don't belong in this space, right? And it is a completely rational thing to think, okay, this isn't for me. I can't do this. I need to do something else. And then you've lost this voice. So I think that for me is the thing that I worry about the most is that who knows you know, who, whose voice we're losing in some of these conversations because they're being shut down. And then, you know, if you look at, at incidents of violence, Nancy Pelosi is a great example because she, she's an incredibly powerful figure. She has all the resources in the world, right? And this still happened. Her home was still attacked. She would have been attacked had she been there. So you could imagine being a politician just starting out who does not have the financial resources to be surrounded by security, right? Or, you know, it's, it has to travel to campaign and has to do so alone and is worried about being physically attacked. And we do see those things continue to happen. You know, there's some, some encouraging signs. More and more countries are starting to have 
legislation that specifically outlaws political violence against women and makes it a specific crime. But everybody has to understand, I think, the nature of this violence and the fact that very often the point of it is to silence women. It's not to win an election. It is to keep women out of this space, to make it clear that we don't want you here and we're not going to permit you to be here. That's for us the thing that, that I that I worry about the most, certainly, is that we're making it so much harder already for women to run and then to have this kind of additional layer on it and without having a really conscious attention to addressing these issues and to making sure that women can be safe physically and psychologically, we're not going to be able to tackle this issue. I think we can do it, obviously. We're all going to have to come together and identify this as a, as a true problem for all of us in order to, to tackle this issue moving forward. Absolutely. Plenty of work to do and change to come. I'm going to go now to the final few questions. I always ask my <laughs> guests if you had all the power in the world, just for a moment, so you could only change one thing, what would be the thing you would change for women? Oh, my gosh. Is it cheating to say that I would abolish the patriarchy? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just one thing. That's one it's very big thing. Right? <laughs> it's just going to have to be somehow evaporated in the moment. But I do, I do think that there's a way to kind of get at this fundamental you know, I, I joke, but I mean, all the time I, I talk about this, you know, I have this little poster by my desk, and it just says tears of the patriarchy. And, it, you know, it's being able to dismantle those kind of fundamental structures on which almost everything is based, right? That's what I would want to clear up, because that's what it, it's going to take in a lot of ways, right, for us to be able to understand that men and women are fundamentally equal from the jump and rebuild that up. So I'm not sure how you do that with the magic wand and what it looks like, but I think that's what I would want to happen. I suspect it's cheating to say that, but you asked. I'd, I'd love to have that magic wand. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Coming from the big wishes for the world to a more personal angle, what's the worst misogyny you've ever experienced? It's hard to, to point to a single incident. I've been in, incredibly lucky across my career and that I've, one, worked for a lot of women, which I think helps in a lot of ways, honestly. I've, I've had a lot of incredible women bosses. I've had a lot of incredible men bosses too, of course. But I think when you find yourself, in the certainly in the gender equality space, the number of rooms that I walk into where I'm only talking to women is, you know, on the one hand, great. On the other hand, not really what we need. But just to say that I've had a lot of women bosses. So in terms of my professional career, the misogyny that that I have encountered, I suspect, is this kind of low expectation, you know, this, this misogyny of low expectation, right? And I think part of this is just my personality, but my instinct, when I hear something and somebody says something to me that is just wild, my instinct is to think like, oh, I'm so embarrassed for you that you said that you thought that and then that you said that out loud. Part of this is my personality. So I, I try to poke back or joke back or try to address those types of comments in ways that will hopefully make the point and not immediately put up the defenses of the person, you know, that I'm talking to. But that is my that is my kind of mental psychological reaction It's just like, what? I can't believe that you said that. Certainly when I was earlier in my career and younger and, and looked young, there was a lot of this just like people assuming that I was dumb because I smiled a lot, right? Like, I mean, like things like that. And I'm not interested in changing who I am in the way that I approach people and the way that I do my job to be taken seriously. Because guess what? If you don't take me seriously at the beginning, you're going to, because not doing so is going to come around, right? So 
underestimate me at your peril. So I think for me, I tend to assume that that is a, a them problem, not a me problem. But that's because, you know, I was lucky enough to be kind of raised to assume that I'm doing okay most of the time. So just to say that I think probably I've internalized more misogyny than I am aware of. And that's its own tragedy. But um, I try not to take things personal that aren't personal. And those types of things aren't because it's not about me. It's about them. Right. That's a very good rule, a really good rule. I'm going to come back now to electoral politics and put a fact to you. In 2022, women occupied 26% of parliamentary seats globally, compared to 13% in the year 2000, according to the Interparliamentary Union, the IPU. So from 2000 to 2022, gone from 13% to 26%, so it's doubled. What's your reaction to that fact? I mean, I'm glad we're getting there. It's nowhere near enough and it's nowhere near fast enough, right? Women are more than 50% of the global population. So we should be at least 50% of our leadership of members of national parliaments. I'll throw another statistic out there. The World Economic Forum every year produces their global gender gap report in 2022, and this was the same for 2021. They have four dimensions of this report. Women's political empowerment is one of them. And, you know, by their calculation, if we continue to make progress at the rate that we've been making progress, it's going to take 145 years for us to get to parity in women's political empowerment. So I'm thrilled that we've managed to to double this in 20, but I don't have 145 years. None of us do. We got to get there faster. So I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we are, you know, moving in the right direction, but I'm impatient for progress to accelerate. And I think luckily there's so many tremendous women leaders out there and we're lucky enough to have many of them out there speaking up right now. But we also need to be redoubling our efforts to ensure that we're not waiting 145 years for this gender gap to close globally, right? We need to get there quicker. So I feel impatient when I hear that statistic. Impatience is good. I'm going to take you now to a Virginia Woolf quote. Virginia Woolf says, for masterpieces are not single and solitary births. They are the outcome of many years of thinking in common or thinking by the body of the people so that the experience of the mass is behind the single voice. Regina War says. <laughs> oh, I, I don't think you can improve on that. I mean, I think that's what we're trying to do now, right? If we consider the masterpiece, this kind of this, this world in which everybody is able to, to take on the role that they want to take on we had to start kind of sowing that seed so that everybody understands that that's the, the common goal, right? So I love it. What an incredible thing to hear. I've never heard that before. But I think, you know, that's the groundwork that we need to do right now is is having everybody, you know, pulling in this same direction and realizing the beauty of this world in which men and women have this equal opportunity to be who they want to be. I like that phrase, the beauty of that world. Thank you for talking to me today about how we get to that beautiful world. That's been a great conversation. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's, it's been my sincere pleasure. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute's furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, 
please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash GIWL and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at GIWL Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.